This is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Today, we pulled together a really timely conversation about one of the most challenging foreign policy hotspots in the world. That's Idlib in northwest Syria, where a battle for influence is raging with unprecedented geopolitical and human consequences. First, we'll talk to GMF senior fellow Jonathan Katz here in Washington for a quick update on the latest developments in the region and where key players like Russia and Turkey stand. Then we'll toss it over to Rachel Tausenfreund in Berlin for a conversation on the massive implications for EU-Turkey relations and what's at stake for the millions of refugees displaced from this conflict. So I'm here with Jonathan first. Hi, John. Hey, glad to be here. You watched this topic very closely. Tell us what's the latest, what's going on. What we have taking place in in Idlib and Syria, close to the border with Turkey, is really a continuation of what has been a Syria uh, civil war conflict that's taken place since 2011, uh, where you've had uh, several hundred thousand Syrians killed millions displaced externally, millions internally as well. And over the last several years, President Assad, who is the nominal president of Syria, um, has sought to regain territory um, that was taken by rebels and others uh, since the start of this conflict. Part of the gang that is supporting Assad is uh, is Russia, is Vladimir Putin. Uh, We've seen a lot of discussions, including a recent meeting between Mr. Putin and and Turkey's President Erdogan uh, recently. Uh, We also have Hezbollah, uh, militia and terrorist group uh, based in Lebanon, and then also uh, uh, Iran, which has also played a role, including providing troops uh, to address this challenge. So what we've had right now is a war that's been raging for almost uh, over nine years, uh, with you know, with tens of thousands killed, and Idlib is really one of the last remaining strongholds uh, that the uh, that those who oppose Assad control, and for Turkey, which has been part of this ongoing conflict over the last, uh, really over the, since the beginning of December, in the sense of what's been taking place in Idlib, because the conflict and the push by Syria into Idlib into area that it doesn't control uh, really started in December. And so for the last two months, we've seen this fighting between Syria and Turkey and Turkish-supported forces uh, in Idlib. So Erdogan and Putin had a meeting recently. Where was the U.S. involved here? Because it seems like these two are essentially calling the shots. Where does the U.S. stand? Yeah, so the meeting between Erdogan and Putin took place on March 5th. Uh, What's happened is that very early on, Turkey uh, was facing uh, real, obviously, military challenges. Um, over three dozen Turkish troops were killed, and Turkey reacted by firing on Syrian troops and really actually um, has really had an impact on, on Syrian troops and Syrian capabilities. Uh, but this, this whole conflict over the last several years has seen Erdogan and Putin really in some sense with the U.S. sidelined, uh, coming to an agreement about how uh, these areas that were still controlled by those that opposed Assad 
you know, what they, what would be the deal f- to ensure that those remain, to ensure that there wasn't another wave of refugees coming forward. And so deals were made previously with Russia, similar deals where there was an agreement in which to provide some type of safe space in which there, which those within these spaces wouldn't be attacked. And, and again, you know, time and again, Syria and Russia have violated these agreements. And Idlib was really is the last standing space. And so this agreement that came that came about on March 5th was really about, in, in essence, trying to, one, stop the violence, stop the conflict where it is, but also try to resolve uh, the humanitarian needs in this space uh, with so many people displaced and sort of moving towards the Turkish border. Uh, but also, it was really, there's some sinister parts of it. One, for Russia, in which this is a deal that that Erdogan was incredibly, was really the weaker partner. Uh, Syria, over the last several days and weeks, has been able to consolidate part of the territory uh, around Idlib. Uh, and what this deal does is actually cements the gains that were made. So Erdogan had red lines. Those red lines were crossed uh, multiple times. So I don't think there's a lot of faith in Putin that he will actually keep to this agreement or that Assad will keep to this agreement. Because remember, Assad wants his country back, but in the vision that he has, which is basically removing everybody who might be in opposition to him. And Russia wants to maintain its power uh, within Syria, its bases, which it has a naval base. But also, obviously, Turkey is a NATO ally. It's apparent to everybody who's watching this situation that uh, Mr. Putin would like to divide Turkey from NATO. Uh, This is uh, Mr. Putin's goal wherever he works in Europe is to try to divide the transatlantic community. He knows that Erdogan's relationship with the United States and the European Union and NATO allies is at its weakest point. Erdogan uh, purchased uh, Russian uh, missile defense systems, S-400s. They opened up a new energy pipeline that runs from Russia through Turkey. And what you have seen over the last several years is this a bromance between the two of them. It's more about corrupt authoritarians working uh, together to advance each other's interests. Where does the U.S. come in here? We so, the, so are the, we pulled out of Syria? Yeah. So the so the U.S. has been active actively involved in this diplomatically. Uh, you've seen uh, sort of U.S. envoys uh, working on this issue. We see the U.S. State Department offering support to Turkey. The United States, I think, which was fairly meager, offered to provide Turkey uh, with ammunition. Turkey really wanted the United States, or at least asked and requested support for Patriot batteries uh, to provide some security. Um, And they were met with silence or uh, we'll look into it or no, we don't have anything available, uh, not only from the United States, but also from allies. And I think the, the, the real challenge here for the United States, obviously, is uh, we also want to see a resolution to the situation. The United States has also offered up humanitarian assistance um, over the last several days. You've seen the United States announce um, several million dollars for those that have been uh, displaced. It's hard to work within the space of those still in Syria, but those who are external. And I think that needs to that needs to continue. But the relationship between the United States and Mr. Erdogan is so soured over the last several years. Uh, and because Mr. Erdogan has has tried in every which way to show that he's more supportive of what Moscow or the Kremlin wants versus what that of the United States and others want, I think there's a lot of distrust. How do we want to support somebody that we don't trust? 
And uh, one of the easiest things Mr. Erdogan could have said in asking for support from the United States is, I'm going to mothball the S-400s. I'm going to remove them, or I'm just going to shut them down. And you don't see that. And so what we're seeing is, I think people are very smartly understanding that er that Erdogan would go back to Putin again to try to resolve these issues. And every time he goes back, he, he sinks in deeper and deeper into this embrace with Putin without a way of getting out. And so the United States... Uh, you know, obviously as a challenging situation, because what takes place in Syria is clearly a, you know, an example of what Erdogan, uh, you know, of, of the challenge with both Erdogan, but with really with Putin, it's really more to me about a NATO issue, about a southern flank of NATO, and about how Putin, you know, without, you know, any concern for humanitarian catastrophes, women and children, is willing to just indiscriminately kill people to achieve objectives. And so when you look at other spaces where Russia is in right now, including in, you know, in the Donbass or Crimea, what he has done in, in terms of warfare uh, in Syria is far beyond anything that we have seen. And so I think there's every reason for the United States to be deeply concerned. In fact, I think it's less about whether you support Turkey and it's more about about Russia and concerns about what Putin learns about how the West won't react in a significant way to this type of, of activity and action that his government has been taking in support of Syria. That's it from us here in Washington, and we will be going to our colleague Rachel Tazenfreund in Berlin next. Listeners, a small note for you. You're probably not going to listen to this until uh, maybe Monday. So it's important for you to know that we're having this conversation Thursday late morning, Europe time, March 5th. So it's before the Erdogan-Putin meeting and before whatever else might happen in the upcoming couple days. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund. I'm here today with two of my colleagues, my colleague Özge Unnitsajikli who's the head of our Ankara office, and Jessica Beither, who's with our migration team and is a migration fellow with us. Today we're talking about the fight between Turkey and the EU regarding Syrian refugees and the fight in Idlib. On Saturday, Adwan officially declared that he had opened the Turkish borders to Europe, and on Friday he had been providing buses for refugees in Turkey to head to the border. It's a kind of reopening of the 2015 crisis around refugees um, heading towards Greece. Yesterday on Wednesday, the EU and Adewan had talks, and the result of that was that the EU high representative did announce or promise 60 million euros in aid to help people in northwestern Syria. And there is talk of uh, 700 million euros of aid to Greece to deal with uh, refugees. Also, I'm going to go to you from the Turkish perspective you know, what's the context of this? What is what is Erdogan's argument? What does he want from the EU? Hi, Rachel. Hi, Jessica. Uh, so there are actually a couple of factors uh, that has driven uh, President Erdogan's recent policies uh, regarding the refugees in Turkey. Uh, first of all, the number of Syrian refugees uh, in Turkey has reached, uh, I think, 3.6 uh, million, uh, which is a very uh, high number. Uh, but there are 400,000 uh, other refugees uh, in Turkey, uh, bringing the total number of refugees in Turkey to uh, 4 million. 
which is a very considerable uh, part of Turkey's population uh, right now. Until recently, uh, Turkey did not have uh, very big issues around the refugees in Turkey. Uh, but as uh, you know, the Turkish economy uh, is not doing very well. Uh, for the last couple of years, unemployment uh, is increasing. And as unemployment is increasing and poverty uh, is increasing, uh, suddenly the Syrian refugees has become more visible uh, in the Turkish society. Uh, increasing uh, the urgency uh, about finding a solution to this problem and not being able to find a solution as a political cost uh, to President Erdogan. Uh, second, uh, during the uh, Peace Springs operation uh, in northeast Syria, uh, before and during the operation, uh, President Erdogan had promised uh, to the Turkish public uh, that after this operation, a significant number of Syrian refugees in Turkey would be relocated to Northeast Syria, something that did not happen. Uh, then third, uh, as you have mentioned, uh, now there is a new battle in Idlib, but I mean more than the battle, uh, the Syrian regime is trying to recapture Idlib and in doing so is destroying the livelihoods uh, of people there. And this is basically the last stronghold uh, of the Syrian opposition. So they have nowhere within Syria uh, to go to. Uh, because of this, already uh, one million Syrians uh, from Idlib uh, have uh, rushed to the Turkish borders. Now, one million new refugees in Turkey on top of uh, four million uh, would be a bit too high uh, for Turkey. So Turkey is trying to do two things. Uh, first of all, Turkey is militarily uh, trying to prevent uh, President Assad uh, from uh, recapturing Idlib uh, so that Turkey can uh, keep those refugees. Uh, within Syria. Another thing uh, that President Erdogan is trying to do is he has reached out to Turkey's traditional NATO allies for political and even maybe uh, military help uh, against uh, the Assad regime, which is supported by uh, Russia. In Idlib, uh, Turkey's argument is, I'm not doing this for myself alone. If Assad uh, manages to capture Idlib, there will be uh, implications uh, for all of us. Uh, so we should be helped. Erdogan wants the NATO allies and maybe specifically Europe to take more responsibility for what's happening in Syria, including the Syrian refugees, but he actually has a bigger picture in mind. One could say he's opening the border to demonstrate to Europe that actually this does affect them. Is that the right move? And what's the context on the European side, Jessica? Before we maybe go to the bigger important geopolitical question that you asked, Rachel, and how the refugee migration situation plays into that, I think it's really important to note that it's it's not whether this is the right move, it's really a, a tragedy if people and migrants, people fleeing to the border are weaponized. And this is in essence what Erdogan has done. And so he's caused an escalation at the border um, due to political reasons. But and this is what we're seeing with the scenes at the border, um, but also on the Greek islands that has, of course, a real human and humane implications and toll. And this is in essence, in the immediate sense, what Europe is dealing with right now when it comes to the border. There's, of course, bigger questions that come into play. The EU-Turkey arrangement that was done through the EU-Turkey statement um, that, of course, came into force in 2016. But there are important contextual factors that has changed since then. Um, and this has been sort of the writing has been on the wall for over a year now. Erdogan has made these threats before. Um, I think uh, no one was sure whether he would actually make them 
real. And so um, maybe just a couple of really important points of, of what has changed. And this is sort of the timing. Beyond the immediate timing of the death of the Turkish soldiers, there is that it comes within the EU-Turkey framework at a time when the money that has been part of the original agreement uh, that has been paid to the support of Syrian refugees in Turkey has uh, been spent or allocated in full. And so we were at a time where it was unclear whether there would be additional money coming from Europe to support Turkey. So this was in negotiations, but we really didn't have a clear idea of where that was going. Özgür mentioned already that Turkey itself was under growing pressure, or the Turkish government, because of the, the population. And the longer the time went by, the more refugees were there. But on the European side, Europe has failed for three years to sort of get its own house in order. So we have a humanitarian situation on the Greek islands, over 40,000 people in overcrowded camps. We haven't been able to get visa processes in place or a mechanism among European states to really bring people that have arrived or have been in Greece for a while. There's a bigger European question. And now, if you ask what the European position is, it has to walk a really thin tightrope between, on the one hand, making it clear, and, and EU officials have said this, of not being blackmailed by Turkey, and maybe even more important of not letting it appear that the situation will unfold as it did in 2015 or 16. So of demonstrating that this is a different situation and that Europe has control. The tightrope walk is between that and an escalating situation at the border and being able to preserve human rights, uh, due processes and a humane approach to the people arriving there. And of course, this goes to the very core of what Europe and the EU stands for. This goes to the core values. So this is where Europe actually has a lot to lose if it can't walk that tightrope. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I think we have to go back just for those of our listeners who you know aren't deeply embedded in EU politics, who maybe don't know the contours of the EU-Turkey deal. As a result of the large influx in refugees coming to Europe in 2015 was negotiated and announced in 2016 and was indeed First of all, to solve an immediate problem, but also to give Europe time to get some common processes or agreements around, uh, as you say, visa, asylum, things like that. And um, sadly, that didn't happen. What else didn't happen that was supposed to happen in this deal? I'll start with you, Jessica, and then Uzga, you add from the Turkish perspective if you see something else that, for example, President Erdogan doesn't think was delivered. I mean... Maybe at the time that this statement was negotiated, there were a whole bunch of things that were included, visa facilitation for Turkish citizens, customs union, and other things. On the refugee and migration issue, though the main components was um, actually 6 billion euros in aid by the European Union that was meant to and has significantly supported Syrians in Turkey, including allowing Syrian children to go to school, access to medical care, and to just cash assistance programs. There's other parts of the mechanisms where Greece could return every Syrian to Turkey and in exchange would resettle um, Syrians from Turkey to Europe. And that all sounded good on paper in practice. It just was never implemented that way. The reason that you want to do it that way is to de de-incentivize covert travel to uh, Greece, which is dangerous. Uh, we had, you know, many, many people dying in the Mediterranean and say, stay in Turkey in the camps and we'll bring you then to Europe, right? This exactly. Thought, that yeah. that was the premise also. And it was the premise of that less people would have to die. In practice, this didn't work that way. But that was the idea. Let's bring people safely that deserve it. So, and it didn't work in that the EU resettled far fewer. I think I saw a number 27,000 than 
it was envisioned they would, but also because they didn't send as many back, right? There was many reasons why the Greek authorities did not only returned a very small amount of people under this provision. Um, I mean, we can argue, and I don't know, with Esger later, whether now this is a necessary provision or not. But I think the important thing about it was was the idea behind it is like that we can save lives by disincentivizing people to have to go to Greece in the first place in, in boats that may capsize, but then stepping up resettlement efforts by the EU, which can be done in a far bigger fashion so people would get another way to come to Europe. Uzga, in terms of the Turkish perception of this, did the EU step up the resettlement efforts? Was there a sense that the EU was still an active partner in helping Turkey with the number of refugees? Well, what the EU has done uh, in Turkey is definitely uh, significant, worthy of praise. On the other hand, Turkey thinks that while Turkey has uh, held its end of the bargain, the EU has not. I will go item by item what the EU uh, committed to Turkey. So first of all, the EU was supposed to spend 6 billion euros uh, in Turkey under, until the end of 2018. I guess, Jessica, please do correct me. I think 60 to 65 percent of this money is yet spent. I mean, there are technical difficulties uh, in spending the money. Nevertheless, uh, this was committed. Second, resettlement uh, was not possible, not because Turkey did not facilitate this, uh, but for a while, uh, Greek courts decided that Turkey was not a safe country uh, for refugees, so they did not want to uh, send anyone to Turkey. So it's not that Turkey did not readmit them, uh, it's because Greece uh, would not send. Uh, Third, uh, there was the issue of visa liberalization for Turkish citizens. Uh, this did not happen, and this was supposed to happen actually in 2000, by 2016. Uh, it did not happen because Turkey could not fulfill uh, all of the criteria, but uh, this was a deliverable that Turkey expected, and it did not happen. Uh, and then, of course, the accession process uh, was supposed to be revitalized with new accession uh, chapters open. This did, not, this did not happen because of the political situation. Uh, in Turkey. But again, uh, this was something that Turkey expected uh, to happen uh, that did not happen. And then Turkey and the EU were going to cooperate uh, in humanitarian aid to the uh, Syrians in northern Syria. This did not happen either because the EU was not in agreement uh, with Turkey regarding Turkish military incursions uh, into uh, northern Syria. So there are reasons for each deliverable not being delivered, but so far as Turkey is concerned, it's keeping its end of the bargain and it's not getting in return what it was uh, supposed to uh, get. So, so far as Turkey is concerned, first of all, this agreement uh, is flawed and it needs to be corrected. Now, coming to the humanitarian uh, situation, uh, Jessica has mentioned the weaponization uh, of uh, refugees, uh, which is uh, obviously uh, something that's not acceptable. But of course, we should also uh, not omit uh, what uh, the Greek security forces are doing on their border, uh, because actually the passage to Greece is dangerous, also because the Greek security forces want to make it dangerous. It appears that the European Union is now politically owning uh, what uh, Greece is doing. Uh, and I must say that this is actually a very small crisis uh, right now. Uh, that the European Union is facing. The European Union is going to face far bigger refugee crises uh, in the future. And if this is the way the European Union uh, is going to respond to these uh, crises, the EU uh, will have a lot of trouble keeping up with its uh, own values, actually. And it will not be uh, in a position uh, to criticize others, including Turkey. Yeah, maybe I, I, 
disagree slightly with what Usger said. I think the, the bigger points, and especially on key elements of the agreement with visa facilitation uh, and other areas, um, Usger, you're absolutely right. On the money being spent, uh, $4.7 has been allocated actually already, and that has been earmarked, so to speak, that will be spent. And if you know European bureaucracy, I think just the fact that it hasn't been spent on time does not mean that Europe did not uphold its end of the bargain on that and at all. What I would add, though, is that Europe has failed to sort of get in front of the messaging of making a compelling case that it wants to continue cooperation with Turkey. And we have not heard that since the negotiations have taken place. There has not been a proactive ownership of Europe will want to continue to work with Turkey and Syrian refugees in Turkey. And I think that's a missed uh, me, opportunity. Let me slightly disagree with your slight disagreement with you. Uh, those six million euros were uh, six billion uh, euros were supposed to be uh, spent uh, by the end of 2018. And of course, Turkey expected after 2018 uh, there will be a, there would be a new allocation. We are in 2020, and yet that six billion euros is not spent in full, let alone a new allocation. First of all, moreover. Uh, not a single euro cent uh, is spent uh, within Syria, uh, which was also uh, part of the agreement. So uh, what Turkey actually expects right now uh, is a paradigm shift uh, rather than you know, counting uh, number euros and cents. So the EU has generously uh, offered 50 uh, million euros uh, for uh, northwestern Syria, whereas 700 million uh, euros uh, for Greece. The, here, actually, Turkey uh, really expects uh, a paradigm shift. So basically, if the EU can spend 700 million euros uh, for Greece holding uh, 40,000 refugees, it means that actually the EU has the means uh, to, do, to do much more in Turkey and in Syria uh, for the refugees, not for Turkey. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe just, I mean, Özgür, you're right also on the optics, but I want to actually take that point uh, that you made and throw it back to you. It's like, let's not start uh, counting cents and pennies in, in that sense. I think there are multiple reasons why that may be the case. Also, because it's unsure at the moment of uh, what the humanitarian aid in, in northern Syria would go to. But I completely agree with you that this has to be dealt with as a bigger picture package, right? If we're talking about the future between Turkey and the European Union, it has been from the get-go not just a migration and refugee crisis, it has been a political crisis, right? But political crisis in Europe, but also now a political crisis of Europe's role in the wider region, of Turkey's role in the wider region, and then, of course, between Turkey and Europe. And so this has to be part of a bigger political engagement package, and then we can discuss what type of money would be, but it needs to include some support of Syrians still in Turkey. You are right, Özgür, um, there is no way around speaking about Idlib. Josep Borrell, the high representative of the EU, just called it the biggest humanitarian uh, disaster since the Second World War. And uh, Europe has a humanitarian, but also a political interest, of course, of helping there much more. But the solution is political. And maybe that's also my last point. This political situation is currently being discussed by people and actors that are not Europe. So today, Turkey and Russia are meeting. Um, that will determine a lot of what options are on the ground in northern Syria. And I think before we don't know the details of that, it's very hard to discuss of what Europe can help Turkey with. But in terms of Europe helping itself, let's say, Europe got some time with the 2016 deal. Now that it should be obvious 
that this was just a little bit of time that they got, but they actually do have to, you know, come up with a common and better functioning asylum system. Are you optimistic? I mean, Rachel, I think you're you're right. What we're seeing is that the time that Europe sort of bought itself and the European-Turkey agreement was always just a temporary solution. It's the same thing that you're seeing in Libya right now. And uh, Europe really hasn't figured out a way. There are options, though, and we're seeing the first uh, first signs of that. Europe is at least uh, in some way moving in the right directions. On the sidelines of the interior minister meeting yesterday, Luxembourg and Finland have called uh, for at least evacuating uh, unaccompanied minors from the Greek islands uh, with countries that want to do this. A bunch of cities have formed a coalition and, and called for uh, being willing to resettle from the Greek islands um, these unaccompanied minors. Beyond that, there are calls for, without agreement among all 27 EU member states, countries that are willing and able to resettle and relocate a number of people among the Mediterranean and to be in the forefront of holding relations with North African Middle Eastern countries in that regard. So there is movement. It's far from a functioning system, but the most important thing is to keep pragmatic and humane increments of moving forward on this matter. There are vulnerable people involved at the border right now and we don't have a we don't have a solution at the moment that's uh, humanitarian um, from either side I mean Greece has some right to protect its border I think everyone can agree with this but the result is uh, something that is not really in line with Europe's uh, values this is why it's so challenging well and the number one issue is to de-escalate the situation at the border right um, Greece has suspended uh, asylum applications and processing for one month um, until this is done but uh, the more the situation escalates at the border, the more the risk grows that there are um, really a situation that we don't want to see with um, uh, people, you know, being treated inhumanely or even even hurt. That's good. I mean, um, you both mentioned the meeting between Turkey and Russia, and there's been talk already for a while of a kind of safe zone, which would at least resolve temporarily the kind of refugee situation, because it would be in the end a kind of giant refugee location within Syria. Do you think Europe would be able to buy itself out of doing more to really support uh, a safe zone or another solution to protect refugees in uh, northern Syria? Would that be enough for Erdogan? Is it as much about the symbolics as it is about the real actions? Or Well, I mean, it's all of them. Uh, first of all, if the European Union uh, wants to have a say uh, in its neighborhood, uh, it should also uh, play a bigger uh, responsibility. Uh, so, I mean, today we can talk about a prospective safe zone uh, in Idlib, and we are, of course, not sure uh, that that will be the uh, outcome of the meeting. I mean, Erdogan could actually walk out of Moscow without anything in his hands as well. Uh, but if there is a safe zone, first of all, let's not forget that it will be achieved because of the sacrifices uh, of Turkey uh, in blood of its soldiers, uh, by the way. Uh, and first of all, so Turkey is already uh, playing or uh, shouldering a big responsibility there. So once that safe zone is created, uh, it's up to the European Union to uh, play a role there or not. But uh, if the European Union uh, cannot play, play any role uh, in uh, that safe zone, I think it will be very disappointing uh, from the perspective of uh, Europe, European neighborhood policy because it will mean that the European Union does not have the capacity uh, to play a role uh, in, in crisis situations uh, in its neighborhood. So, First of all, I think that for its own sake, uh, the EU should, have a, should play a bigger role, not only in terms of uh, helping humanitarian help uh, to the uh, Syrians, 
uh, living in there, but also political pressure uh, to Russia, political uh, support to Turkey, but also uh, military role. For example, in terms of uh, imposing a no-fly zone on Idlib. Uh, I think that the EU has the capacity, European member states do have the capacity uh, to play such roles. And if we go back to the refugee agreement, I mean, my perspective there, I think, is a little bit stronger uh, or maybe more realistic uh, than President Erdogan's. I think that as it is, uh, this refugee agreement is doomed to fail. Okay, uh, now we are talking about talking within the parameters of the refugee agreement. But the moment either side, either uh, the European Union or Turkey, uh, decides to walk out of this agreement, uh, then actually Turkey will not have. Uh, the responsibility uh, to protect Europe's borders. Turkey will not have the responsibility to protect Greece's borders. Turkey will not have the responsibility uh, to stop immigrants in Turkey who choose to move on to Europe. Uh, in this case, uh, not only Greece, but also the European Union uh, will face a much, much, much bigger uh, problem. Uh, so first of all, I believe that the European Union's uh, goal uh, should be to maintain Uh, some sort of an agreement uh, with Turkey. But from my perspective, this agreement is flawed because there are actually uh, so-called deliverables uh, in this agreement which are impossible to deliver because of the political situation in Turkey. We all know uh, that no new chapters uh, will be opened with, in, with Turkey. No new accession chapters which are uh, rely on kind of political openness and, and certain yes. measures in Turkey. Yes. Yeah. And we all know that due to the political situation in Turkey and the way it's interpreted in Europe, uh, there will not be a customs union uh, modernization in the foreseeable future. So why keep them uh, as parts of this agreement? This agreement, by the way, is in a way it's transactional, but then there are normative parts of it as well. I believe that the normative parts should be removed. If this is a transactional uh, agreement, it should uh, remain a transactional agreement. But Turkey uh, should perceive that it's actually getting uh, what it's giving. Yeah. A, a transactional, a new EU-Turkey deal that's more transactional, Jessica? Um, I would disagree with the term transactional in terms of there will be elements that are transactional, but the, the core has to be a political interest of both sides to work together to make it something that is actually working and that is not able to sort of break on the whim. There has to be sort of a political engagement that is tied to a bigger interest. This does not mean, and I think you're absolutely right, Özgür, to put unrealistic things, maybe to have fewer things in an, in an initial agreement where it's just related to migration and refugees makes sense. But, and here we are at the bigger question, this of course ties into bigger geopolitical questions and an honest discussion on the true cost of European absence in conflicts uh, and geopolitics in its neighborhood. And migration and refugee issues now play a part of that, but it's never about the migration and refugee issues in the first place. And so unless you treat this also from the European side as part of a bigger geopolitical question of which, of course, Turkey is part of and not just a transactional nature, then we are doomed to just hit the snooze button again and uh, look at the same issue again in one year. Well, I mean, Jessica, uh, I would actually like uh, to say something. Uh, I think that on this refugee issue, the EU should see Turkey uh, as a real partner uh, rather than the gatekeeper uh, of Europe, because Turkey does feel uh, that it's being treated as the gatekeeper of Europe. And Turkey also feels uh, that 
uh, it's turning itself into a reservoir of refugees. You know, refugees keep coming to Turkey from the east, but they cannot uh, move on to the west. Uh, so what's the end game of this? So will this be a perpetual accumulation of refugees in Turkey? Uh, I mean, the EU should be concerned because this is not realistic. What Turkey and the European Union are facing are probably nothing uh, compared to what we both will face uh, in the upcoming decades uh, if we look at the population dynamics in our uh, common neighborhood. So if we cannot uh, manage the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, I think that we will utterly fail uh, in the uh, crises uh, coming up in the next decades. And it is maybe also a case in point what happens uh, in times of crises when uh, countries do not cooperate and go it alone, um, like Turkey, but also like Europe in many regards. So it's sort of a case in point if we don't uh, get our act together, uh, what may lay ahead. Um, that's not an uplifting place to end, but I think it's probably a very appropriate place to end. Thank you very much, Uzga. Thank you very much, Jessica, for uh, joining me. And the next time the alarm goes off after this period of snooze, I might be talking to you again. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Tarrant. 